Good morning. Uh, welcome to Midtown 12 South. It's a joy to be with you. So, got some people finding seats. We'll wait. I'm kidding. <laughs> Sorry, public shaming from a pastor. Sorry, it's unfortunate. Uh, but it does motivate. I'm kidding. Um, hey, uh, we are about five weeks into a sermon series uh, on the book of Nehemiah. Um, we have been studying this book, uh, and, and it will lead us all the way to Advent, which is very fitting because uh, Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. It's actually the last historical thing to happen to the people of God in the Old Testament, the Israelites, the Jews. It's the last thing historically to happen to them before there's 450 years of silence and then Jesus arrives. So it's the last thing to happen before the, the coming of Jesus, the first Advent. And so we're gonna study this book leading us right into Advent season as well. But for this season, uh, or for this uh, book to kind of uh, punch us where it needs to, to kind of hit home for it to, um, for us to see the beauty uh, of this book, we need a little bit of context. So here's what's been going on in Nehemiah. Here's the, here's the historical context of what's been going on. God's people have been taken captive by the Babylonian empire. They are no longer in their homeland. They're no longer in their promised land. That happened uh, in about 587 BC. They were taken captive by the Babylonian empire. The Babylonian empire then gets taken over by the Persian empire. And so the people of God are now captive in underneath the rule of a Persian king. King Artaxerxes I is the king at the time of Nehemiah. And what has happened is the king has allowed for a small group of people uh, in the book of Ezra, right before Nehemiah, to go start rebuilding the, the, the temple of God in Jerusalem and the city of God in Jerusalem. That work has begun. Hope is beginning to spread amongst the captives. Maybe we won't be captive forever. Maybe we'll be able to go back home. Maybe we will be restored to our homeland. Well, that work gets paused. And not only does the work of the, of the rebuild get paused, the city, the walls, the, the, the infrastructure gets burned to the ground again. Nehemiah is back home as the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, and he gets word from the home front that the rebuild project has been paused and the city has been burned to the ground again. The walls in particular have been laid to waste. And so Nehemiah gets in his heart, this cupbearer, he's not an architect, he's not a builder, but he gets in his heart, I am to be the one to lead God's people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. I carry that burden now. I carry that desire now. So he gathers his troops, he prays, he fasts, he goes before the king, Artaxerxes, who he was friends with, he was the cupbearer too, and he says, king, I need to go back and rebuild the city of my homeland, the city of my forefathers to restore Jerusalem. And the king grants him access. The king gives him 12 years off of PTO. The king supplies him with all of the, of the lumber and the gold that he's gonna need to go back home and begin the rebuilding project. So last week we looked at all that has happened. Nehemiah shows up on the edges of Jerusalem. He gets there with his team, his camp, and for three nights he scopes out the work that is to be done. He's getting a lay of the land, the cost that it's gonna take, the energy it's gonna take, the money it's gonna take, the labor it's gonna to take to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That is what we have seen thus far. But tied up in all of this is not just Nehemiah wanting to rebuild the city of God. Tied up in all of this, and we're gonna look at this again today, is this underlying or overarching or beneath the surface, however you wanna look at it, this reality that says by Nehemiah going back home to rebuild Jerusalem, he's not just putting walls in place. He is joining God in the process of restoring the world. Because here's what every Old Testament Jew knew. Here's what every Israelite in the Old Testament knew is that as long as Jerusalem lays in ruins, as long as Jerusalem is a wasteland, the promises of God to restore the city, the promises of God to, to heal the world are on pause. 
Because we know that God's, God, for the Old Testament Jew, that for God's providence, for God's promises to come true, they needed the city of Zion, the city of God, to, to, to not be burned to the ground. So he's joining this massive story in the rebuild project. So that's what's going on. And now we come to Nehemiah chapter three, which Midtown Fellowship is, 12 South, is a part of a bigger Midtown Fellowship movement in the city. We've got five uh, other locations in the city. One of the pastors, who will remain unnamed, uh, this week when we were talking about this passage said, I think Nehemiah chapter three is the most boring chapter in all of scripture. Um, he said that about God's word. So don't go to any other Midtown, come here. So um, he, and here's, here's the thing though, he might be right. And there's part of what we're going to look at is the boringness of this chapter is part of the beauty of this chapter. We're going to look at it. What we're about to read is, is the listing of the rebuild project. Who's, who's done what on the rebuild? It's just names and places. If you were in small group at Midtown this week, we discussed this passage before this Sunday. This was the passage of the week um, leading up to the, the service. And it was probably boring to read in small group. So here's what uh, Elliot decided to do was uh, I was going to read the passage, but then I decided not going to do that. And and then I was gonna have someone that I didn't like come up and try to read this passage, but I, I don't not like anybody, so I didn't do that. Uh, so I got a professional, someone who has been paid to do this uh, on an audio recording, is gonna read for you uh, from the Bible app, is going to read Nehemiah chapter three. We're just gonna read about half of it uh, and try to stay awake, okay? So Nehemiah chapter three, starting in verse one, it'll be on the screen as well. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers the priests and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zachar the son of Imri built. The sons of Hassaneah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam the son of Barakiah, the son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joiada, the son of Pasea, and Meshulam, the son of Besadea, repaired the gate of Yeshena. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Moronathite, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhea, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Judea, the son of Harumath, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Habish, the son of Hashabnia, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Haram, and Hashab the son of Pehath Moab repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom the son of Elohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zanoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakaram, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Colhozeth, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden 
as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Beth-zur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. Sure, kidding, 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 kidding. Um, your pastor just snored at the Bible. Uh, but seriously, I mean, anybody, I mean, how fun is that to read? Is that just like bring your life and speak to you right where you are this morning where you came in? But it's in our text, it's in uh, God's word to us. And this account is just a, it's just a detailed list of who did what, what they did, where they were from, and what they were working on. It's the details of the work completed. We stopped halfway through the chapter. The, the rest of the 16 verses, the next 16 verses, uh, is the same exact thing. So you're welcome for only doing 16 verses of it. Um, this gets us about halfway around the wall of Jerusalem. We throw this map up for us. I'm gonna show you a little image of what just took place. Um, so this is an image of uh, the old city of Jerusalem, what Nehemiah rebuilt. You can kind of see up there, if, if it's kind of facing um, uh, north and, and east to us, but really what is facing north and east was due north. So if you, look, if you go to the north edge of the city, up there you'll see that big building kind of up on the hill is the temple. That's what uh, Zerubbabel and Ezra have already rebuilt. And then if you go just above that, uh, where the line coming out from it up in the north says the sheep gate. Everybody see the sheep gate? Okay, that's verse one. That's, they restored, the priests restored and built uh, and consecrated the sheep gate. Then if you follow that line along the kind of the western edge of the, of the wall of Jerusalem, the, all those places were just named. All those places were just named by this account of Nehemiah of what was being rebuilt. And we've got district rulers and goldsmiths and priests and perfumers. I don't even know what a perfumer is, but giving up of their time, leaving their vocation during the week to come and rebuild this wall. And they're sacrificing their lives. It's not safe work. They're rebuilding this wall. And as we work our way down the, the list of names, that to us, we go, what are they even rebuilding? Who cares about the names of the walls? What any Old Testament Jew would have read when they read this account, it would have been to you if I had described 12 South in this way. 12 South's been burned to the ground. It's been decimated. And I said, all right, so they started up at Jenny's and Josephine and they worked on Taproom. And then they went across the street to Taqueria. And then they came to, what's the new one across the street? The wood-fired, what's it called? Emory, Emory. I don't need correction over here. Thank you. But um, they, they go to Emory and then they come to, they, they restored the, the 12 South Church building and then they go to Frothy and then they go to Bartaco and, the, and they get all the way down to Severe Park. Like any named place would have been, everybody would have gone, oh my gosh, they're repairing that very well-known, very critical part, very notorious part of the wall. And so if you follow this along, what starts up at the Sheep Gate for us, they work along that western hill into that central valley down there and then get to the very bottom down there where it says the Salome Pool, kind of on the very bottom left of our image, and then the Dung Gate down there, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's where all the animal excrement was, was exited out of the building into the valley. And then right next to that, if you see, this is mentioned in our, in our passage as well, um, is the King's Garden because it's very fertile down there next to the Dung Gate. Um, it's a beautiful, lush garden for the king. And then right next to that, the Fountain Gate, uh, just kind of just moving up the eastern wall on the bottom there, um, the stairs that go down from the city of David, you can see is mentioned in chapter three, verse 15, which we just read. The rest of the chapter gets us up the eastern edge of the wall and the, re the end of the chapter, verse 32, ends back at the Sheep Gate. So what Nehemiah just told you is we rebuilt the entire wall. And let me tell you all the named places. Let me tell you all the gates. Let me tell you all the, the, the bolts and the bars and the beams. Let me tell you about all of them and who did it and where they were from. And they were working together side by side and they worked on all this and they completed the wall of Jerusalem. 
They built, they repaired, they constructed, and they restored the walls and the gates. That's what we just heard about. That is important for us. It's kind of hard to understand. It's kind of hard to really imagine. We don't really have a wall that protects the city of Nashville, other than maybe, you know, um, the music industry or something like you can't get in here. No, I'm kidding. But we have, we have this, we have this uh, hard time imagining why did they have this huge wall around the city? Well, in the old world, the ancient world, uh, the ancient Near East, walls were an enormous part of the city's identity. Here's what walls mainly did. They protected a city. They kept the inhabitants of the city safe so that the economy could flourish, so that temple worship could happen, so that families felt safe. Walls kept people inside safe and they kept enemies and evildoers out that inside the walls of the city was this protection, was this shalom. Inside these walls, no enemy can harm you. You were to be protected inside the city walls. In Maslow's hierarchy of needs, psychologist from the 40s, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it, it talks about what, what is the hierarchy, what is the building of the needs of what you need to be a human being to be alive and to flourish in the world. The bottom need of Maslow's hierarchy of need is physiological needs, like you need food and air and shelter. You, you, need those, you need water. You need that to be able to survive. Right on top, the next thing for Maslow's hierarchy of needs, what you need to survive in this world is safety needs. That even if you have food and, 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 and shelter and air and water, that doesn't mean that you can flourish as a human being until you feel safe enough to do so. That all of us cannot move on to other things of flourishing of what it means to be a fully alive human being if we don't have things that meet and make us feel safe, safe to exist, that we're not in danger all the time. It's the second most important need for the human being. So that's what, what's, what's happening to these, to these Old Testament Jews rebuilding the wall of Nehemiah is, hey, for the inhabitants of this city to feel safe, for Jerusalem to return to its former glory, for the temple and the worship to happen and the sacrifices that need to happen in the temple, we need to feel safe and we do not feel safe unless the walls are intact. But the walls aren't the only thing they rebuilt. We heard about 10 different times the gates that were restored, the gates that were being constructed and reconstructed. Really interesting the amount of times a gate is mentioned in this chapter. That if walls protect from enemies, gates were meant to let people in. Walls were to keep people out, gates were to invite others in. The gates were a place of entry and interaction. And here's what you can try to begin to understand about the Old Testament identity of the people of God in Jerusalem and why Jerusalem was so critical for them. That it's not just that they had to have a wall to feel safe on the inside. Part of Jerusalem's identity, part of the Israelites' identity and why Zion was so critical for them was that they were not just to be a, a place that housed the temple and was insular. They were meant to be a city to display the glory of God to the world and invite people into that. That they were to be a billboard for the world to go, come meet our God, come worship our God, come know Yahweh the way that we know Yahweh. That Jerusalem existed for the world. Israel was intended to be a place of welcome, a place that let people in as the dwelling place of Yahweh. So that's what they did. They built these walls and these gates to try to restore Jerusalem to its former identity. We just read it, we just heard it read. Quite the mundane chapter to read. Even with all this work that we just talked about they were doing, quite mundane to hear it read. So if it's mundane to read, how, do, how mundane do you think the actual work was? How mundane do you think it was to be laboring on this wall, stone after stone after stone, gate and hinges and bolts, and laboring with doors and laboring and stone laying and stone laying. And by the way, these are not like professional stonemasons. They were perfumers. These are priests, like 
Priests don't know how to do anything with their hands. We don't know how to do, like, we don't know how to build stuff. And so there's like, wait, this was, this was like not just monotonous, mundane work. This was hard work. Like, we don't know what we're doing here. We're not experts at this. To be mundane um, simply implies or means that it's something that lacks excitement, lacks interest, lacks purpose. And so this mundane work of these, these people showing up day after day after day, they completed almost two and a half miles of wall. That's about how big Jerusalem was around as the circumference. And so two and a half miles of work, of, and all they were doing, they were just showing up, laying stone after stone after stone, clearing out rubble, chopping down, breaking up, in a violent way, these, these stones of stonemasonry. It's like, this is, this is hard work. This is mundane work. This is not sexy. This is not like, oh my gosh, how lucky were these people that they got to be the ones that laid the stones down. Does your work, does your call, does your labor, does what you've been called into ever feel mundane? Like if you're a mom in the room and being a mom is your full-time job, which is glorious, how mundane does your life feel week to week to week. Like how many diapers do you have to change where you feel like, what am I doing? Is this even serving any purpose? I am not excited about this. How many kids do you have to get off to school in the morning and feel like, is this even, is this even doing anything? Like is this, does this have any greater meaning? Or if, you, if you're a barista and you work at Frothy or Portland or, or wherever and you, you show up to work and you just sling coffee and grind coffee and make espressos and make Americanos like day after day after day and you stand on your feet all day and hope that jerk tourists are good tippers. Like how, how like you just show up and you just go, I just don't, I just don't know that this is, I just don't know. Or maybe even, maybe even you moved to Nashville for a, a job that you were really excited about when you moved here. Maybe you moved here for, to be a songwriter. Maybe you worked here to work in the industry. Maybe you worked here for a healthcare job or some startup. Like you got really excited to move here. And now you are doing the thing that you moved here to do because it had all this promise and all this hope and all this excitement. And now you're just, you're just a songwriter. And you just have to try to like put words on paper for some artist every day. And you're in rights and co-writes five days a week, just churning out songs. You're like, what, is, this even, is this even doing anything? Or how about being a student? Like you're, you're just asked to just show up and listen to lectures and study for some calculus test that you're never gonna use again. Like do you, do you ever just feel like, what am I, what am I doing? Like what, what, why, is this, why does this even matter? You can begin to imagine that as a human being laying these stone after stone after stone after stone in this run down Jerusalem town maybe wasn't all that full of excitement and meaning and purpose for them just from a human level. See, we tend to despise our work and call it mundane because we've been trained to think that my life needs to feel epic all the time. That's why Instagram exists, by the way, so that you can prove to other people how epic your life is. And so there's this reality of like, well, I want my life to make me feel a certain way. I need what I wake up to do in the morning to give me a sense of epicness and meaning and grandiose, uh, this grandiose nature of making me feel like my life is mattering. So what do I do when I have that strong desire, but then I go to work every day and it doesn't make me feel that way? And so maybe what we can tend to think is the answer to my mundane life right now is to go find something else that won't make me feel mundane. And so we have no stick to We don't know how to commit to something. We don't know how to stay with something because when it's mundane, I, I wanna feel a certain way about me and my life and my work is not making me do that. So I probably seem to find a new job because this work doesn't make me feel the way that I want it to feel. How often do you feel that way in your day-to-day, the pointlessness, the endlessness, the depleting nature of that? Like what am, what am I doing? 
I don't know that I can crunch numbers anymore. I don't know that I can be a financial planner anymore. I don't know that I want to be a doctor anymore. I went to school for 100 years to be a doctor, and now I don't even know if I even like showing up to the clinic to help people heal. Like, I don't even know if, that's, if that excites me anymore. I don't even know. It just feels mundane to me. We can see people in the story absolutely were tempted to believe this about the wall rebuilding. I know that it was like a monotonous reading and a mundane reading, but if you go back to verse five, there's this little commentary put about some of the workers. You may not have caught it, but he says, and next to them, the Tekoites repaired, that's people from the land of Tekoa, like a region nearby Jerusalem, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. So there, there's these Tekoites, there's these people from Tekoa, Tekoya, and they, and they decide, uh, well, their nobles decide, their socially elite rich folk from their area decide, yeah, I'm a God-fearing Jew, and I know that Jerusalem's supposed to be this big deal, but I'm not going to stoop to do that boring work. And what that comment makes us see is not just that there were those that were unwilling to participate, that those who participated were a part of something that other people looked down on. I'm not going to stoop and do that boring stone laying. I'm not going to show up to that and get my clothes dirty. I'm not going to show up to that and participate in something that isn't even serving a purpose. There were those that refused to do the mundane work because it was too mundane for them. They were too good for it. They would have been too bored by it. It was beneath them. And mundane labor very often can make us want to walk away from it. This is monotony. This is mundane. I will not do it anymore. But if we stick with our mundane labor, like we could walk away from it like the nobles from Tekoa, but the, if we stick with our mundane labor, here's what can tend to happen. If we're not careful, if our mundane perception of our work goes unchecked, then it inevitably leads to a shut down heart. Mundane labor, if stuck with, will lead to a shut down heart. And the shut down heart, the one that's just lifeless, the one that seems to have no meaning or purpose in what they're showing up to do, the thing that they are called to labor out for doesn't seem to make them feel any certain way about their life, it gets shut down and then it gets locked in the cage. Our shut down heart gets locked in the cage by the harsh taskmaster called cynicism. And cynicism locks the door and throws out the key on our shutdown heart being in a mundane existence. Because here's what cynicism begins to look like. Bitterness, doubt, anger. Nothing matters and nothing is working. Do you ever get cynical? Do you ever believe that nothing will change? Do you ever believe that nobody will change? Do you ever believe that the labor you're putting out isn't making a dent in the world? Do you ever believe that what I've been called to do isn't really making a difference? And so why am I even doing this? this? Just nothing even matters anymore. Why would I show up and labor for this? I guess I will just uh, work in order to live, to get a paycheck and I'll just live for the weekend because I don't really have any meaning in my Monday through Friday because it's so mundane. And so I guess nothing even matters anymore. Do you wanna know if you're a cynical person? And this, this has to do with your cynicism about your relationships, cynicism about your vocation, cynicism about your existence. Here is a great phrase to know whether or not you are cynical. How often do you say this phrase? Here we go again. Here we go again. Just gotta show up and do this thing. This person's not gonna change. They're just doing it again. It just happened again. I have to just live with this. And whenever we say that phrase, here we go again, that, that last word on that phrase, again, means this about the one who said it. I already know how this is gonna turn out. Again, 
I've been here before. I've showed up to this job before. I've showed up to this relationship before. I've showed up to this existence before and nothing ever seems to change. And so we get cynical about our monotonous mundane life. Nothing matters. Cynicism traps the shutdown heart in the cage and makes it feel like everything is mundane and purposeless. So you can imagine in this text that on top of this monotonous labor of just like stone, stone, stone for miles, the heat of the day in Israel, the monotony of this work, that the cynicism that would have married them in this moment, the cynicism that was so, easy, so easily would have crept in to the laborers that we just heard the names of, all the workers around the wall, how easy do you think it would have, been, would have been for them to believe this? By the way, history lesson, Jerusalem has already been burned down twice. And it's already been destroyed twice. And now these people are back and they wanna get all excited about a new start for Jerusalem. How about this? Hey guys, we've tried this before. We've built this wall before. We've seen it burn down before. Why are we doing this? What is stopping when we finish building the wall? What is stopping some other empire from coming and destroying it again? Why would we show up and do this? Here we go again. Sure, Nehemiah, we'll go do this. We'll give up our other vocations to come and do this monotonous, dirty, earthly work. For what? Why would we even wanna take part in this if this is just gonna end the same way? Here we go again. Cynicism feeds on itself, especially when we can't see that our labor, our pouring out is a part of something bigger and more meaningful than what we are actually doing. If our mundane work is disconnected from a bigger purpose, from a bigger narrative, cynicism will end up suffocating us and keeping our heart trapped inside the shutdown cage. Mundane work cannot be disconnected from a bigger purpose or a bigger narrative or you will live in cynicism all the time. So what does the kingdom of God say to our mundane life? What does the kingdom of God say to our cynicism? What did it say to their mundane existence and their cynicism? Well, the word mundane certainly implies this boredom and a lack of excitement, a lack of purpose. But on a deeper level, the etymology of that word mundane comes from the old Latin mundanus. And the old Latin word mundanus means earthly or worldly. The reason why mundane work feels mundane and boring and monotonous and purposeless is because a truly to be mundane means that it is only made up of the earthly, only made up of the worldly. In other words, it is devoid of anything divine. And to be devoid of anything divine means that my work has no bigger meaning. It only has the purpose that's right in front of me. And so it is bound by this earthly world and it has no part in a heavenly one. And so to truly be mundane means it is devoid of anything divine, devoid of any bigger storyline than only what my eyes and my ears and my heart can see right in front of me to give what I do each day any purpose. If it's truly mundane, it has no divine in it. And so the only way we will ever be willing to sustain our work and our labor in a longevity sense, in a stick to sense, is if we believe that our work and our labor is not just mundane, but it is caught up in some divine storyline. The only way we will ever sustain our work and our labor and stay with it, stay committed to it, 
in the mundane existence of our life is to believe that our work and our labor is not just mundane. It's caught up in some divine storyline. So did these people's labor from chapter three, was their labor, was their monotonous labor, this monotonous chapter that talks about monotonous and mundane labor, was it caught up in a divine storyline? Let's see. Well, see, in this immediate sense, and this is hard for us to grasp because we, we don't live in a theocracy, but for, for the people of Israel where God was their king and God was their governance, um, their, their geographical capital city was not just geographical and political. It was deeply spiritual. And any Old Testament Jew would have known that they were participating in something, at least in theory, they were participating in something far beyond just stone on stone, meaningless work. This was Zion, This was the city of God. This is where the temple was. This is where Yahweh's presence was intended to dwell. And for the Old Testament Jew to see Jerusalem in ruins meant that they knew that God seemingly had given up on his promises to the Jews. God had seemingly given up on his promises to the world to restore and heal the world. That if Jerusalem is ruined, so is the hope of God healing the world. And so they were able to show up to this work, even as mundane, as monotonous as it seemed, to not just be a part of this stone on stone so that our neighbors can feel protected and this economy can flourish. They were invited into believing they were part of something deeply spiritual with each stone that was being laid. They believed that. They had to believe it. That Zion and Jerusalem, one and the same, those are synonyms, that the city of Zion, the city of God, was also a deeply spiritual place for the Old Testament Jew. It's hard for us to understand, to imagine like brick on brick, stone on stone, for us to imagine that it had a deeper meaning for them. And I was thinking about this week, it it actually got brought up in our small group, that coming off of 9-11, can you imagine after all like the 20th anniversary and seeing all the stories, if you've watched any of the docs, they're great, but can you imagine like being on the working team, being on the workforce that was asked to go rebuild the One World Trade Center? That you you would have this like smidge, you would have this breath of, oh, Maybe what I'm doing is a part of something bigger than just laying brick on brick. Maybe I'm a part of something that means more than just constructing a tower in lower Manhattan. Maybe I'm like, I'm rebuilding something that's bigger than just a building. That, that like very, very like <laughs> microcosmly, like just barely scratches the surface of what these people were invited to believe. That I'm participating in the rebuilding of Jerusalem, which is the city of God, which is the spiritual haven for the world, which is where we are called to not just live and flourish and dwell, but we are called to be a beacon of light for the world that the presence of God is here among us for the nations to come and see. And they knew not just do we need to restore this Jerusalem for the temple and the spiritual acts of this city to be intact. They also knew the promise of a coming Messiah was inextricably tied to Jerusalem. The Messiah would only come to Jerusalem. If there's no Jerusalem, there's no Messiah to come to Jerusalem. For God to restore the world, we know the Messiah must come. Therefore, we must restore Jerusalem to have a city for him to come to because he has been promised to come and work in Jerusalem. So that's, that's part of what gives these, these Old Testament workers in Nehemiah 3 this sense of, I'm not just laying stone on stone. Like I'm, I'm doing something bigger than me. I'm a part of something more significant than myself. But here's what I wanna ask you. Even if they had all that, even if they had all that understanding, Jerusalem's supposed to be restored. It's supposed to be this beautiful place. It's supposed to be the, the dwelling place of God. And one day our Messiah will come to Jerusalem. Even if they had all that. Can you imagine these workers, all the people that were named, Great baby names in that list, by the way, if you're looking for that. But can you imagine these people 25 years later, 40 years later for some of them, 50 years later, they're on their deathbeds. 
And you're, you, get, you get transported back to them and you go, hey, sir, ma'am, you, you, you were invited to work on the rebuilding of the walls and the city and the gates of Jerusalem. How do you feel about that? Did, did it... Did it come through? Did it serve the purpose? You, you had this grand vision of restoring Jerusalem and the Messiah now as a place to come. How did that turn out for you? Did it deliver on the purpose and the, and the, and the meaning and the narrative that you thought it was gonna deliver on? Did this work matter in the long run? All of them would have said no. Well, no, the Messiah never came and now I'm dying again in Jerusalem. Yeah, we rebuilt it, but like, the spirit of God didn't even come to dwell in the temple again. Like, what are we even doing here? Like, this is not, we, yeah, we showed up to work because this is supposed to be this grand thing and it has spiritual significance in every stone that we laid, but no, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure my life of uh, mundane labor actually paid off the way that I wanted to. But if you fast forward almost 500 years, 450 years from this time to the time of Jesus, here's what you would have found out. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the, the earthly ministry of Jesus. The Messiah did come. And there are places in Jerusalem that Jesus, the coming Messiah, worked and lived and dwelt and performed miracles. There are names of places, like the Fountain Gate or the Pool at Siloam, that these people built 500 years before. That these places that these men and women labored for were the very places where Jesus would perform miracles by name. Places where Jesus displayed his glory. Places where the Messiah proved who he was and what he came to do. That the monotonous laborers in Nehemiah chapter three, if you fast forward 450 years, were unknowingly building a stage for the coming king. He had no idea. They were part of something that they didn't see. Let me even invite you in a little bit more uh, freedom. They were invited into something 450 years before that they couldn't see. They could not see the end result for their labor. They had no idea that when they were working on the pool at Siloam, that if you would have come to them with a time machine and said, hey, you don't know this, you're rebuilding this pool and it seems, it seems like it's got a little purpose right now, but now you're dying and maybe it didn't serve any purpose, you have no idea, but in 400 years, the coming Messiah is gonna heal people here. And you're setting the stage for Jesus. Does that give you a little bit of purpose and meaning? Does that in, infuse a little bit of divine into your mundane? You may never even get to see the end work of this Nehemiah chapter three worker, but you don't know it's setting a stage for the coming king. Is it possible that that's always true for your labor too? That every single monotonous act is a part of something much bigger than you can see and maybe even won't ever see? Would you trust that this is the kind of story that God is writing all the time? That God is always setting the stage for his glory. God is always calling men and women to labor in places and for the sake of people that they may not always get to see the fruition of their stone laying. What does that do to your cynicism? What does that do to your view that you would define as your mundane and meaningless life? Or let me ask you this. At the end of your life, after, after doing your vocation or pursuing your business ends or being a mom and a grandma for the rest of your life and you get to the end of your life and someone with an interview came and said, hey, 
Did all of your pouring out, did all of your mundane existence, did all of your financial planning, did all of your laboring, did all of your diaper changing, did all of your restaurant serving, did all of your songwriting, did it serve the purpose that you wanted it to? Did it give you meaning? Did it make you feel like you were a part of something more divine? You may go, at the end of your life, you may go, nope. Worked really hard, poured out a ton of energy, got really cynical, didn't think any of it was worth it. And what if... God had a vision for your life that was whatever was right in front of you. Like, I don't know what God has, been, has called you into. Here's what I know he has called you to today, whatever you're doing, because that's where you are. So wherever you are is what God has for you today. I'm not saying he's not gonna call you somewhere else. I'm not saying he doesn't have a different vocation for you. I'm saying that today I know what he's called you to, to wake up and go to work tomorrow. And whatever he's called you to, what would it look like to believe that even if you can't see how the mundane and the monotonous work and the monotonous labor is serving some greater purpose, that in 500 years from this labor, you would be able with Jesus to look back and go, you had no idea that you were a part of this grand mosaic of God setting the stage for his glory. You couldn't see it then. There's no way you could possibly see it. Just like the stone workers in Nehemiah 3, you couldn't see it. What would it look like to believe that in hindsight you will fully see What would it look like to know that that's the kind of God that has you where he has you, knowing that he is always working in miraculous and mundane ways and that he will do things with the work of our hands that you may never see the fruition of? Is that possible? Is it possible to believe that what I'm laboring for and it's excruciating and it someday it even rips my heart out and I don't even know if I wanna keep doing this, that you would dare to believe that in time you'll be able to look back with a glorious future and say, my God used my seemingly mundane labor to redeem the world. So what part of the wall are you called to? What everyday business are you called to having your hands on? And I'm not just talking about like what you get a paycheck for because some of you have been called to things that don't give you a paycheck. Like what about just the hard, hard work of like loving your spouse and your family? That's really easy to get cynical about. It's really easy to believe this isn't doing anything. It's really easy to believe it's just mundane. It has no divine storyline. What about the really, really monotonous work of being a valet driver? You just show up with all these rich people and they throw you the keys and you wanna take it for a spin, but you just have to go park it and go back, to, go back to the stand. Like, Is it possible to believe? I have no idea how that's a part of God's fabric. I have no idea. And I wouldn't even try to do that with all of your vocations. I just know the kind of fabric that God's writing and that he's always writing. What would it look like to believe that about financial planning or songwriting or healthcare or teaching to believe that my seemingly mundane labor is never mundane because I have a divine God who has, not, who has not let any of my work be in vain, who has promised that one day in time I will be able to look back and see, just like these laborers, that he was setting a stage for his glory. And see, here's what the Christian believes. Even when our work still feels mundane, The Christian is the one that enters into what God has set before them to do, knowing that their mundane tasks are never disconnected from the divine story of God in the world. That's what it means to be a Christian in the workplace. That's what it means to be a Christian in your home. That's what it means to be a Christian who gets up with the monotony in front of them and the mundaneness in front of them and knows my mundane tasks are never disconnected from the divine story that God's writing in the world. So 1 Corinthians 15 says, in the Lord, none of your labor is in vain. None of it. what these people were invited into believing, that if we go back and tell them, they would be caught up, they would be called up into the beauty of what this seemingly pointless stone laying was doing. 
was setting the stage for the Messiah to come. And these newly restored walls of Jerusalem would be the stage on which the Messiah would come and Jesus would come to these very places, the Sheep Gate, the Pool of Siloam, the Fountain Gate, all these places that are named in the Gospels that were rebuilt by Nehemiah and his team. They would become the place where the divine would meet the mundane. They would become the place where Jesus would come and show his glory. But Jesus' life did not only consist of performing miracles. They weren't just building a city for Jesus to come and do magic tricks in. <laughs> that if you turn to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is a fascinating book. If you have any Old Testament understanding, the book of Hebrews is trying to lay the person and work of Jesus over the Old Testament and try to show you what a divinely unique Messiah Jesus is in light of the Old Testament. In the book of Hebrews, the author is trying to get people to see, trying to get the reader to see how Jesus's work and life are even more striking than you thought when laid against the backdrop of the Old Testament. And in chapter 14, the author of Hebrews, uh, he's done this several times, but he's, he's connecting the person and work of Jesus to the, the holiest day in the Jewish calendar, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, the, the holiest day of the year for the, for the Jew is that the very end of the year and every year at the end of the year, here's what the Day of Atonement entailed. There's rules for it in Leviticus chapter 15 and 16 in the Old Testament. But the Day of Atonement was this. They had sacrifices every day and every week all throughout the year leading up. And at the very end of the year, the Day of Atonement, it was their New Year's, but it wasn't a party. It was somber and dark. And here's what they would do. They would, they would have all these sacrifices. And what they were saying to the Lord was, we have been so sinful since the last Day of Atonement. We've built up such a record of sin and we've tried to sacrifice and atone for all of them throughout the weeks and the months and the year, but we've missed some because we're inherently sinful and inherently broken and inherently rebellious. We don't even know all the places that we've broken your covenant. So if you're gonna, if you're gonna treat us as our sins deserve at the, at the end of this year, then we're not gonna do well today. It's not gonna be good for us. So we need a day of atonement to wipe the slate completely clean from the last year as we enter the new year with a clean slate. And so they would do this day. Day of Atonement, and they had this spotless lamb, they had these calves, these cows, they had bulls, they had goats, they had all these sacrifices that were made on the Day of Atonement. And there was all this symbolism and all this meaning and all this stuff that, that would happen. But here's what the author of Hebrews has already done by using the Day of Atonement. All throughout Hebrews, several different times, he said to the reader, chapter 10 is all about this, chapter seven, that on the, 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 the cross of Jesus was the once for all Day of Atonement for the Christian that you have been completely atoned for and that you weren't just given a blank slate that Jesus came and he smashed the slate to pieces. There is no more atonement needed because you would add some marks to it. There is no more slate. Jesus has fully atoned for your sins, past, present, and future. The once for all nature of Jesus' sacrifice in light of the day of atonement is what the book of Hebrews has tried to say. But then, here's what the author of Hebrews does in chapter 14. He's already told the reader that Jesus' sacrifice was a once for all day of atonement for the Christian but then he says something else happened on the day of atonement to the animals that were sacrificed. The animal remains and the animal carcasses. See, oftentimes during sacrifices, the, the priest or even some of the families that brought the sacrifice, they could take the meat from the animal and go back and eat it and have a feast and have a celebration from the sacrifice. But this day of atonement, uh, these day of atonement animals held so much symbolic and actual sin on their heads, their bodies were so marred and disgraced and full of the sin of all the people of all of Israel that they said, hey, don't do anything with those carcasses once you've sacrificed them. You actually need to take those carcasses outside of the city and burn them. 
You need to incinerate them and completely destroy them. One, because they are, they are too unholy to be in this holy city, but two, because they are so covered in sin that we need to remove, that's how, that's how much removal of sin was just done for the people of God. No part of the animal of, the, of that day of atonement, no part of the animal sacrifices could live in the glory of the city of Jerusalem. So their carcasses, their remains were taken outside the city walls. Now listen to what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 14 about Jesus's sacrifice and in particular where it took place. Hebrews chapter 14, verse 11 and 12. The high priest carries the blood of these animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. That's the day of atonement work, the holy of holies. The the animal blood was sprinkled in the holy of holies, day of atonement. But the bodies of these animals were burned outside the city. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make people holy through his own blood. It's this little but massive geographic truth that Jesus was sent outside the city to die. He was so covered in sin that he was sent outside the city that if the city of Jerusalem was meant to be holy, Jesus was so covered in our sin that he was symbolically and then literally thrown out of the city. That if the city walls were meant to protect people, Jesus was so symbolically and and literally covered in sin that he lost all of the protection of the city. That if city walls are meant to keep people safe, Jesus symbolically and literally lost all of that safety. That the place where the divine became the most mundane, the place where the divine entered the mundane, the place where the divine became the most marred, the place where the divine emptied himself of all of his glory wasn't in his miracles, but was when he hung naked, crucified outside the city. That these laborers who worked 450 years before were building this wall of safety and in 450 years later, Jesus the Messiah would be incinerated, would be decimated, would be utterly destroyed like the animals from the Day of Atonement. Why? Outside the city? To make the people holy through his own blood. Here's what what the author of Hebrews is saying. That because of this, because of the divine Jesus marring himself with our sin and now being cast out of the city, we are now holy, which means we now belong to him, which means this, you always will belong to him. You can't be cast out of his city because he was already cast outside the city walls for you. You can't lose the protection of his city because he already lost the protection of the city in order to bring you into his And one day, here's what all this means. The work of Jesus outside the city guarantees that one day a future city, one day the new Jerusalem, one day the heavenly Jerusalem will descend here among us and we will work and we will play and we will rest and we will abide in the city whose builder and architect is God. And we will be able in that new city to look back on our mundane life and we will look back at what God has done with our monotonous labor and we will stand in awe in the city with the Jesus whose work made all this possible. But we're not there yet. So here's what we do until that day. We wait. 
We wait, we wait, we wait, we wait. We wait for the city whose builder and architect is God, that Jesus was cast out of the earthly Jerusalem for our sake, that one day the heavenly Jerusalem might be ours. We can't see it, but we wait in the mundane, we wait in the monotony, and we believe that the divine mosaic is being woven in even when we can't see it. And here's, the, here's, here's, here's how we walk from this place as we wait. You wait with Jesus. Because Jesus is waiting for that day too. Jesus labored for that day. And it would be really easy if anyone would, would dare to believe that Jesus, who did all this work to make this city possible, he would have every right to go, I mean, I don't know, is what I did worth it? Is what I did actually, did it actually, and here, here's the promise of the book of Hebrews and everywhere else. Jesus' work outside the city makes that day promised. Jesus' work outside the city guarantees that one day the new heavenly Jerusalem will dwell here with us too and we will see that none of our mundane life was in vain. Let's pray. Jesus, we do, we have, we have a hard time believing that what we've been called to matters that it's a part of some divine storyline and would we even embrace the freedom and the gift of not even having to know how it's gonna be used in your economy. But I don't know how everybody's labor is gonna set the stage for your glory. But I know one day in the new Jerusalem, in the new city, in the new Zion, we will look back and stand in awe of our God. We belong to you and you belong to us now because of your work outside the city. Would you give us uh, faith? Would you give us patience? Would you give us endurance in our mundane lives knowing that to you, our mundane lives are wrapped up in the divine? Thank you, Jesus, for your blood outside the city that was shed for us in your name, amen.